Hello and welcome to You Don't Know Lit. My name is Nick Archers and this week I'm looking for the best book about architecture. To help me are two handy high school English teachers. <laughs> handy or handsy? Hi Nick, I'm a no, high school no. English teacher. My name is Joe Olsher and if you're looking about for a book about architecture, I brought probably the coolest book about a house I've ever read. Um, it's called Piranesi. It's by Susanna Clark. It's like magical realism, science fiction-y stuff and it was written in 2020. Hmm. Sweet. Um, Nick and Joe and Litheads. Uh, this week, my name is Dr. Ian DeYoung. This week, I'm a doctor of design. Uh, we're designing Ooh. something special. For Architecture Week, I brought a very fancy book by a very fancy man from Switzerland and Britain. It's called The Architecture of Happiness, and it's written by Alain de Botton. May your earlobes turn into assholes and shit on your shoulders. Hey, the plot doesn't fucking matter at all. This is what I think it's about. If you look closely <laughs> enough, every author was at some point a racist. Audiobooks don't count, right? All art is quite useless. <laughs> who, who, who told you that? Fun fact, that is how Joe laughs. laughs. Uh, I have a question for you two this week. And that is this. What is your favorite building right now? Mm, I like the Guggenheim just for the name. Oh, mm. good name. Good shape. Good name. Good mm -hmm. shape. Guggenheim. Yeah. Spiderly. Mm -hmm. Spiderly. I Wonky. am kind of into those really skinny New York City skyscrapers that they're making, like on, <laughs> on Fifth Avenue. Have you seen these? They, they, they look like they'll blow over. Yeah, they do. They have to put like wind tunnels like every 20 oh, wow. floors so the wind can pass through and there's massive <laughs> weights in the in the upper um in the upper floors that swing and sway as the building does to counterbalance Sheesh. the building. Um so I'm pretty into those. I think they're that just, currently that just, the most expensive apartments in the world. It's gross. That seems like just like a couple of math errors away from a really really bad catastrophe. Yeah. Okay. Those are good. It's interesting to me that both of those are in New York. Ian, this smells like one of those patented Ian and Joe and leading questions. <laughs> no, it's a, no, it's a set it's up. Not. It's a classic set up. If there's any leading here, it's just that we don't really talk about um, buildings that we like much. And mm. yet um, buildings do affect our emotions. Uh, they make us they make us. Like we, we, we say like, oh, I like that building. This is probably a good time to mention that this is a theme that we didn't make up, but was a user submitted theme <laughs> <laughs> recommended by Lithead Ben. Lithead Ben. He wrote mm. books about architecture. He wants to know. He wants to know. He wants us to tell him why our books about architecture are great. And I think we're going to do that today. Well, welcome, Litheads, to You Don't Know Lit, a weekly, or as we call it, Strongly Podcast, strongly where every week podcast. we pick a theme, and Ian and Joe, two high school English teachers, bring book recommendations. And just to upset one of them, we pick mm -hmm. a winner. And it upsets us every time. And it does work. Gentlemen, we have some show rules to keep us on track. Rule number one, only unavoidable spoilers. Rule number two, omit needless words, Joe. And words, Joe. rule number three, only winning matters today. Only um, winning matters. And I want to just add the shadow rules, of course. Make sure your bricks are lined up on top of each other. Pound the nails into the wood, not beside the wood. And most importantly, leave a sacrifice for the building gods leave a sacrifice. before mm. you start building. Thank That's you. And true. I just so want to you go ahead and spoil today's wordle. <laughs> today's <laughs> Today's Wordle recording is early, early in the, the morning. And I'll just go ahead and spoil that today's Wordle is 
lumber, but it's spelled without the E. So it sounds like a dating app for um, (laughs) For construction workers. L-U-M-B-R. There we are. Lumber. There's an umlaut. Joe, do you want to tell me about your book? Nick, this might be the best book ever written about a house. I mean, it's about other things too. Like there's this guy named Piranesi who lives inside this infinite house. It's a vast labyrinth, the house that's filled with seemingly endless rooms, halls, staircases. It's made of marble and decorated with intricate carvings and statues, many of which are mythological and mystical creatures. It exists in an otherworldly realm, surrounded by the ocean. And as far as Piranesi knows, the house is the entire world. It's a book about a house. It's a big labyrinth. A guy lives in it and can't get out and doesn't really want to get out. So pretty cool book. I'm looking at the cover. Seems like a man with a trumpet and goat feet. Um, mm-hmm. Classic mm-hmm. Pyrenees situation. Yep. Is he just a goat? Is he a goat? Good question. Great, great starting is question. He, is he the goat? He's not a uh, goat. He's not a goat. Is he the greatest of all time, though? Yeah, I understand. Uh, no, he, oh. he, you know what? Actually, so in this world, um, he's one of he's one of only two people that lives in this world. So uh, he might be the goat because the other guy kind of sucks. 50-50 chance. Mm-hmm. Other guy kind of yeah. sucks. Yeah. Can these half half human half animals can they communicate directly with the half animal portion, Joe? Hmm. Wait. Question. What can they communicate can directly with? If you have, if you have like. An, an animal top or an animal bottom and a human top, like a centaur or something. Like right. a centaur. Can, centaur can you speak horse as well as human? They can talk, oh, they can can talk American, but can they talk horse? horse? Oh, I see. I think yes, but only with your back half, right? So you can like <laughs> fart Stomping. in a horse. You, you can, can stop in a horse. <laughs> you can do math like that carnival horse. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. Ian, your time is already almost over. How do buildings make us feel? This is the question which Elaine de Baton asks in The Architecture of Happiness. His answer isn't just, they make us feel happy, despite the title. This broad survey of historical and global architecture explores wonder, joy, disappointment, disgust, confusion, and other feelings provoked by architecture. If you've ever struggled to put your emotional reactions to a building into words, this is the book for you. And you brought... The Architecture of Happiness by Alain de Botton. The Architecture of Happiness. If this book sounds familiar to you and you're of, of a certain age, it features largely in a little television film I like to call Five Hundred Days of Summer. They're always uh, reading it in that book. We are They're reading it age. in that book? They're always reading it or in that a, movie. Okay. I, ain't never seen, I ain't never seen that movie, but they're all, I, I'm told they're always reading it in that movie. I just want to hear more about this goat. Yeah, I get it. It's compelling. Joe, I have a one-star review for you. Oh, for this par- book? Uh, yes. You're making this up. Piranesi uh-huh. by Susanna Clark. There's not even a goat in it, says Nick A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one star from Michael. I rarely write bad reviews, but this one was one of the most boring and repetitive books I've ever read. No. Hmm. Halls, vistables, statues, albatross, yep. halls, vistables, statues, albatross, and blah, blah, blah. So gosh darn boring. He didn't say gosh darn. Mm. Tedious and overhyped. This is the kind of book that puts me in a slump. I understand I'm in the minority here. Most people have given this five stars. Gosh knows why. He didn't say gosh. Gosh. So, is this just a really boring book about bricks, Joe? Is Well, it's not a lot of bricks. It's marble, let's be clear. And there are a lot of vestibules. I'm going to be straight up. Okay, this book is... 
Piranesi lives in a labyrinth. Uh, Piranesi is the name of uh, not only our main character, but one of the only actual characters in this book. And he lives in this house that is infinite as far as anybody knows. Anytime you open a door, you enter into another vestibule, you enter into another room, and that room looks more or less like the last room look. It's made out of marble. It's gray. The alcoves in the wall, and there's always alcoves in the wall, and they're always filled with these like ornate, the uh, statues that like show these really like oh life-like one of those little like round tops you, right got and it. it's got Which, the little yep. yeah yeah uh, Ganesh a niche can you put like a little offering to the the holy virgin in the mm, you in, can the put offerings to holy virgins in it um mostly what Piranesi does is like he has little secret places that he like hides his things away that he likes his notebooks he he meticulously documents every room he meticulously documents um anything like weird that he finds like the birds that come and go um he finds skeletons from time to time here um he's only Just found in 13 the middle of, the floor. of them so well he's found them all in different places and every time he finds a skeleton he takes it upon himself to like assemble the bones and put it in one of these niches and kind of have this little ceremonial um area for is it. this like uh like some sort of greek uh greek book <laughs> is, is homer in this mm, okay the, it's it's a little bit italian and i think that's what ended up that, that's what made me end up bringing it for architecture we've read okay. a lot of italian books for this podcast recently okay so this is it, it's kind of a weird premise for a book um like it's this guy He's by himself. He's in this infinite house. There is one other guy that is here from time to time. Um, Piranesi doesn't know his name. He just calls him the other because, of oh, course, great. there are two people in the world, Piranesi and the other. And Piranesi and the other are like buddies. They get along with each other. They have two meetings a week in which they talk for an hour. But whereas Piranesi is interested in the house and explores the house and documents the house and has a perfect memory of the house and like the tides that come in and flood the lower floors. The other seems terrified of the house. Like he doesn't like it one bit. He doesn't leave like his like four room area ever, etc. The reason I say this is Italian, Nick, not, not super Greek, but, but a little bit Italian, um, is because I'm scared. <laughs> the name Piranesi is, it, it, it's a nod. It's an allusion to this guy named Giovanni Battista Piranesi. And I, it was nobody I'd ever heard of before, but, um, in the book, when they talk about Piranesi, like when he talks about his name being Piranesi, he's always like, I don't know. The other calls me Piranesi. But I don't really think that's my name. Like, I don't know what my name is, but like, I don't think that's my name. And the other like kind of laughs about it. It seems like he's kind of teasing him when he calls him Piranesi. Well, it turns out that in the real world, like in our world, not made of marble, but made out of like dirt and sticks and things like that. Tall, slim buildings. Tall, slim buildings, among other things. Guggenheims are also here. There was a guy named Giovanni Battista Piranesi, and he was an architect. He was a designer. This is like 1700s in Italy. And he was super famous for drawing what Roman buildings would have looked like. So he's in 1700s Italy. He's surrounded by this like Roman ruins, right? Ruins of these classic buildings, classical buildings. And he would recreate them, right? Like he would like kind of draw these um 
intricate and like it's thought pretty accurate, you know, as far as they know, based on historic accounts, pretty accurate renditions of, hey, this is the Temple of Athena. This mm-hmm. is what the Temple of Athena would have looked like. And he would publish them and they were really famous. This is what the first Pizza Hut looked like. Right, exactly. First Pizza Hut, first any franchise, right? Right. Olive Garden. Mm-hmm. Olive Garden. Well, all the classic Caesars. Italian. Yes. Yep. You got it. <laughs> um, when he wasn't doing this, though, he would publish what they called his atmospheric prisons. And I'm, looking at the, <laughs> I'm looking at the, way, the Wikipedia okay. for this. Yep. I am 100% on board. This is freaking incredible. It's, it's beautiful awesome. and wonderful. Let me, Nick, I'm just going to drop a link to one of these, just a, an image to one of these. Okay, in the chat but you here. should probably describe it, right? Because this is a podcast. Yeah. Well, okay, well, I'm going to describe it to you and then you can tell me if I'm doing a good job, et cetera. Okay. Oh, right. we'll, we'll give you the affirmation you need. Perfect. Don't worry, buddy. So <laughs> we'll be nothing but supportive. Don't worry. <laughs> That's all I ever ask. All right, so. He would draw these and he would draw kind of for fun. He had a series of like 15 of these that were like kind of popular. And I don't know if it was like a collectible thing, collect all 15. He did a couple different ones over his time. Um, And they're actually etchings. They're like woodblock etchings that he would then make stamps out of. But they'd be the closest um, analogy I can think of when I look at these is they remind me so, so much of M.C. Escher. Um, Nick, M.C. Escher, does this ring a bell for you? He's like the weird staircase guy. Yeah. So what we're looking at, I'll just, I'll describe it. I'll describe it. Yeah, fine. Nick, you describe it. All right. They're just drawings. (laughs) But they're they're drawings of, they're drawings of usually internal spaces. They're Mm -hmm. usually kind of architecture drawings, prison elements to it. Um, They're Mm -hmm. not usually, they don't look like they're in super good shape. So there's a little bit of of antiquity to them. They're not, you know, slick, shiny, modern prisons. Um, And they're, they're sort of, irrational like it, it yeah. looks to me like they, they don't make sense and they look like maybe kind of um to go a little psychological here like a like a like a, a like maybe we can see a little bit of piranesi himself in in what's going on here another one star review said this book is like a uh describing a dream yeah mm. um it, they said it in a complete very negative way <laughs> <laughs> it is but the that's kind of what these pictures look change. like they're like they're pencil sketches and there's kind of staircases going in every direction but this is just one but aren't these spo- I, don't, I don't know i'm confused aren't these supposed to be you said he was drawing rome as it was so so he did two different things he gained his fame through drawing rome as it was like okay. making these really accurate things but then as a fun thing, he also did these. And they are, yeah. I, I like Ian talking about them being irrational places. Like they are ornate, they're complex, they're super interesting to look at. Like your, your eye just follows staircases and bridges and statues and stuff like that. Um, but they also seem like the type of place that could never actually exist. Like it wouldn't, it wouldn't serve Not any sort of function. that attitude. Maybe in New York with their modern architecture. Get to the point, Joe. So- this uh, secret learning is is one of the things that I have in this book is learning about this guy, Piranesi. These um, these settings, these like uh, atmospheric prisons, this is the inspiration for like the infinite house that our Piranesi, our fictional Piranesi lives in. He wanders around it. 
he's super unreliable, but like in an innocent, charming way, like he doesn't know what's going on with the house, but he's got a pretty good attitude it's about like, being there. I've been on these staircases for 23 years, <laughs> but he loves it. But he's like, I am a child of the house. The house will provide, right? Like everything that you need is, is brought to you by the house. So if, if he's Piranesi and he's, he is exploring Who am I? the products of Piranesi's mind, is this a person caught inside their own mind or is this a person who is yeah. willingly, willingly gone within um, inspecting their in- internal uh, geography? OK, thank you. And get to the metaphor, Joe, please. Yeah, right. Like what's the obvious point here, right? When Susanna Clark was writing this. Right. Uh, Susanna Clark, I want to have just a hair about the author, oh, because I think Susanna. this is like pretty reflective here. Oh, Susanna. Right. Why? Why you draw those stairs? <clears throat> when Susanna Clark was writing this, um, Susanna Clark is, has kind of an interesting story. She worked in publishing. She wanted to write novels, right? Kind of these like science fiction novels. And she went to like a fantasy camp, right? And not the kind of fantasy camp that Nick went to when he was a kid, when he like dressed up like a centaur, right? But she went to this camp where she's like, the job here, it's a fantasy science fiction writer's workshop. And it was led by a couple of like, I did not go to a fantasy camp. Ever. <laughs> it's called she goes to this fantasy camp. She has to bring something that she's written. The idea is that you like workshop a piece over this week or two weeks or whatever. And she didn't really have like a piece that was appropriate for it. She had been like writing pieces of this novel. So she basically took a chunk of that novel, brought it to the fantasy camp as like her her entry fee, right? This is in like the early 2000s, like 2000, 2001, et cetera. One of the guys running it, a guy named Colin Greenland, liked it so much that he secretly sent it to his friend, Neil Gaiman. Right. Uh, we know Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And, and Neil Gaiman said it absolutely blew me away that like this could be written by somebody who like wasn't published, who I'd never heard of before. He said um, it was terrifying reading it. He says, from my point of view, to read this first short story that had so much assurance, it was like watching someone sit down to play the piano for the first time and they play a sonata. OK, pretty cool. Pretty, pretty nice nod from Neil Gaiman. Yeah. She ends up publishing this novel called Jonathan Norrell and Mr. Strange. It's kind of a big deal. It wins the Hugo Award in 2004 for best science fiction of the year. Um, And then she doesn't publish anything for 20 years, right? Like publishes this one novel. It's awesome. Doesn't publish anything for 20 years. Piranesi is her second book, right? Piranesi is the next thing that she's written. And she talks in her interviews, like in her bio, in the previous 20 years, she had a lot of health problems, right? And she had um, the, the main thing that afflicts her is chronic fatigue syndrome, right? Oh. Where she and and she says, when you have chronic fatigue syndrome, it really is like you're trapped in almost your own body, like you're trapped indoors, you're trapped in your own body, right? And she says, I would wake up and I would try to edit and I like couldn't do it. Or I would end up like revising the same sentence over and over and over again. And I just felt so, so stuck. I had this bigger idea for a novel. I ended up pairing it back. And she says, and ultimately, like as a way of dealing with this, I went back to this weird little thing that I had written 20 years earlier about this guy that lived in a labyrinth, kind of based on these Piranesi drawings, right? And it was there. It was super limited characters. There was only one or two of them, right? Like it was a story that I could deal with. It was a nice slow burn, et cetera. 
Um, Nick, you want to know what the obvious message is for is here, right? This is a guy that's trapped inside. Like this is a guy that like goes from room to room to room and is trapped inside. And the best thing about this book, Nick, COVID, COVID, it came out in like March of 2020. Like this book published at the beginning of COVID and hit a really receptive audience. I think what we're saying is Susanna did COVID. Susanna was the one who did COVID. Guys, I don't know if you ever see clips on the internet, but we got to come up with more conspiracies for these books. So we go viral. Um, Yep. So Susanna did COVID. We could start there. Susanna, half Mm -hmm. goat. Well, Neil Uh, Gaiman. Also did. half goat. I think I think we just need a, we just need to find a friend for too many butlers who secretly knows Neil Gaiman and will send too many butlers to Gaiman and, and so he can say it's great. That's what all. Are, what are we going to ask Neil when we eventually have him on the show? Because I do I think we could get him. We're all from Wisconsin. That That's is true. a bond that is That's indescribable. Good. Uh, to anybody who's not from Wisconsin. Well, let's keep in mind, Neil Gaiman, like there's something that draws him to the great state. Like he chose to move to Wisconsin. So he gets it. He He gets gets it. it. We could ask him, why did you choose to move to Wisconsin and why was it us? Ian, oh, you're so fucking smart, Ian. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. Um, Such a good question. I would just (laughs) ask him to tell sad stories about Terry Pratchett. That's all I I want to hear Neil Gaiman talk about. I'm like, can you tell sad, sweet stories about your friend Terry? Um, Joe, I, what kind of arc do we have? Like if, if the point of this as hinted by the one star reviews is repetition and the comfort and the, the, the safety that this man finds in the repetition of exploring, um, a, a, an, a place that doesn't really change. Mm-hmm. Um, what's, what, what's where the point does it of the go? Book, does he yeah, fall in love it. with the, the other? Like what, what, what yeah. is this? Is this Munchausen? Does he love the house? Oh, my house. He, I love he, my prison. Yeah. So he actually does really love the house. He calls himself the child of the house, etc. Um, this book, I have pretty much book wise talked about the premise of this book. Like I've pretty much talked about the first 20 pages of this thing because this book pretty quickly turns into a very slow burning mystery. Right? A very slow burning mystery and what exactly is going on. Um, you already picked up like we have this character called the other. He's a little ominous. He's a little sketchy. There is a mystery involving like what exactly is going on with this house. Like why are, are there only 13 skeletons in this house and everything else is like empty? Why can I only meet with the other twice a week for an hour at a time? There's also like this weird juxtaposition in this book. And, and it is so effective because you get this all through the eyes of Piranesi, who's like this hopeful, kind of like charmingly childish narrator. At one point, Piranesi needs shoes. Right. Like he, he has to go find something. He has to go chart some tides for the other or go to this far off vestibule that he's never been to before. And he tells the other, he's like, well, here's the thing. I can't get there. And the other says, why not? And he says, well, my shoes fell apart and I don't. And like the, the ground is sharp on the way there. There's like, like all these broken statues and I'm going to walk over the top of them. Um, and I've been trying to make a new pair of shoes by like catching fish and drying fish leather and repairing my old ones, but it's just not working out. And the other looks at him and he's like, oh, well, I'll get you shoes. And the next day he shows up with a pair of like high top Nikes. Like he shows up with a pair of like sneakers the next day. And it's this weird juxtaposition of like this super classical, super confined world with little hints at something else that's going out there. That tension 
is so unbelievably propulsive in this book. Uh, one of the things I wrote here is I think this is one of the most unputdownable books I've read in the 150 episodes of this show, right? Like Sweet. this, it just moved and not fast, right? Like it, it wasn't um, James Patterson here, right? But it just kept you moving forward, that hmm. mystery. Great. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. I have nothing else to say. I, I, you really can't talk too much about the plot without without getting into spoilers pretty quickly because like that slow burning mystery at the middle, like that's the engine that drives this book. And I... I loved this book. I I really, really dug it. Ian, what's your book about? What is the name of it? What year did it come out? Who is the author? And what is it all about, Ian? My book is called The Architecture of Happiness. It's written by Elaine de Botton, and it came out in 2005. Um, Joe's book is kind of focused. It's kind of it's kind of locked in. Hyper focused. A guy in his brain and the other and some skeletons. Uh, my book is, uh, first of all, it's nonfiction. Let's get that out of the way. It's nonfiction and it's broad. So um, to make the points he's trying to make, uh, De Botton covers architecture across millennia around the world. And he's really not doing deep dives on one specific fantastical imaginary architect from the 1700s. He's using examples of design as i say from across time around the world to make broader points and uh, about about architecture and about humanity and he's interested in the way that architecture shapes people and the way that people shape architecture ian i have a one-star review for you yes oh there there there's there are some good ones out there there's a lot (laughs) um no there's not that many this is a well-reviewed book the ones that are are um, damning they're All pretty, right, here's they're a one star mean. from Mike. <laughs> one star. Architecture is a classic example of pretentious in this book for beginners mm-hmm. only. Yep. Only yep. boasters only bolsters that sentiment. Can't believe I managed to finish it. Well, at least he finished it. That said, there was one single golden nugget in this entire book, and I'll spare you the trouble of reading the entire thing to find it. Oh, wow. Or maybe even listening to the rest of this podcast, yeah, right? Like, just like, right knows. Yeah. Which happens to be right in the middle of the book is a quote. What we seek at the deepest level, Ian is so pissed I'm reading this right now. What we seek, I'm going to start reading quotes from your books. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to force you off further. What we seek at the deepest level is inwardly to resemble rather than physically to possess the objects and places that touch us through their beauty. I don't know what that means. Ian, Mm -hmm. tell us what that means. What, What that mean? Read it again. Yep. One more time. What we seek at the deepest level so like i would imagine kind of in the stomach yeah right. deepest or in the butt yeah yeah but yeah, yeah. yeah like <laughs> bowels bowels yeah. is your deepest the, the bowels, deepest the bowels. butt in your deepest butt parts <laughs> <laughs> this is in the book it's just a direct quote is inwardly to resemble okay so that's where i get lost completely is inwardly to resemble is right. inwardly to-, to resemble rather than physically to possess Okay, that made, that added some clarity. The mm-hmm. objects and places that touch us through their beauty. So we want. He's saying we want to. We can't um, hold beauty. We can't. Mm. We can't. He says. Well, well, he's not saying we can't. He's saying what we want more you than shouldn't. to. What we want more than to own a beautiful thing is to like be a um, be, to to have so so, so, like, so to see to see a beautiful thing totally. and for in some way for us to to be able to say i express the cleanliness or the mm-hmm. whimsy or the yeah. imagination of that beautiful 
thing. We would rather we, we deep deeply in our deepest bowels. We would rather be beautiful than own beautiful things. That's mm. kind of the the point. Mm. Just, and, and the question right. is, why didn't he just say that? I wish um, he would have just said it here. And yeah, now. right. Like, he, think, he doesn't think you want to look like the Guggenheim. Like, I want to be clear about that. Right, he feels but, like you want to be like spatial I, and complex and interesting like the Guggenheim. And memorable. Is. Yeah. And, like, I'm going to get a haircut this week. I'm going to. I'm going to just feel like a Guggenheim. You yeah, get an say, you, you're going to go to the, go to the barber and say, I want to give, give me the Guggenheim. Your, I, I want you, give me your best Goog. <laughs> Goog me. <laughs> Goog me, baby. Um, Don't so say this, that to people. This, this book, um, this book is interested. Yes. In, um, in architecture, but it's also interested in, in this kind of the space of the human mind and, and what we want and what, why, the, why we like architecture and why we're bothered by architecture. He'll, He'll he'll use examples to um, discuss to, to demonstrate the ways that we are connected to the architecture we experience. So he might say, um, guess what? Modern architecture oftentimes works upon us by referencing um, older design traits that we recognize. And then he'll give an example of when this happens. So he'll say at the specific theater in London, the windows make you think of the doors of ancient Egyptian temples. And I'll have a picture of it. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of pictures That's, in this. Book. That, that was my next question. I'm like, <laughs> and, then he'll say, and then he'll say, OK, so why does this act of like recognition, but like under the surface, implicit recognition where we don't say, mm. oh, out loud we don't say to ourselves oh those are like the doors of egyptian temples but in our minds we make that kind of subconscious yeah. connection why does that make us say ooh or yay or wow yeah wow. i think it's a super interesting yeah. i think that's a super interesting wow. question because architecture is one of those things that like i feel like you don't care about it at all or like you never explicitly think about it at yep. all yep but as soon as I feel like art history is like this too, like nobody cares about architecture. Nobody takes about cares about art history until you sit down with somebody and they explain to you why this painting is cool or why that building is cool. Right? Like if you ever go on an architecture tour, you go through this thing where it's like, I don't care about architecture at all. And then 10 minutes into the tour, you're like, architecture <laughs> is the most interesting thing in the yeah, world. I right. cannot believe I have not devoted my life to architecture. But I think, I think Joe, I, I like that comparison, but I think it's, it's a little bit different because art is not utilitarian. Architecture exists in this weird space where it is art, but it's also pra like has to be practical functions. Yeah. So yeah. we, we, so sorry, Joe, wrong. We, we look at like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, it, it's, it's easier to say, Oh, like I will take it on faith that this design of this art matters because we've been told, well, like art is important and makes us human and whatnot. Or whatever. Architecture is something that unless we are activated, as you're saying, we will think of it as purely practical is purely right. useful and so what he's doing is he's acknowledging that even when we think of architecture as useful we still have these inarticulate vibes these feelings yeah. about it and what this book does and i love it is that it gives words to those inarticulate vibes and feelings buildings make us feel powerfully sometimes um they make us feel things and it's hard to say it's difficult to say why they make us feel things and how they are producing those feelings. And what he does is he starts to give the reader a vocabulary for articulating. What is this building doing to me? And why is it able to, <laughs> why is this building touching? How me? Did, why are there 13 skeletons? Right. I feel like in general, um, we used 
like humanity cared more about architecture and now it's completely functional and if there is anything that's not completely functional it's an absolute waste of money (laughs) does he talk about that like the decline of architecture towards the end he has a a whole chapter called the promise of a field say yeah it's the last chapter and he's like hey um, so you gotta we, read the whole book we get really sad when Smart. we see a beautiful field being turned into um a housing development but yeah. we also don't like point at the specific culprits for why we are grouchy about that beautiful field being turned into a housing development and oftentimes it's because the the, the des- design decisions are being made for the purpose of just kind of commercial they're not artistic Mm -hmm. designs they're not trying to look good they're trying to appeal to the the denominator that has the most money uh for the certain situation so he's kind of saying like yeah there was a time when when people were more kind of universally concerned with with good architectural design he's also very very careful to say there were during that same times there were idiots who were doing idiotic stupid stupid things with their architecture (laughs) some of the best best the best pieces in this in this um this book are when he's talking about the negative emotions she's like hey i I go to this place and it makes me feel kind of or i go to this place Mm -hmm. and it makes me feel and why so one of my first jobs out of college i worked as a a like a proofreader for a government contractor is pretty much what it was. And the office that I went to was the most oppressive building I think mm-hmm. I've ever been in my mm-hmm. life. It was just like concrete this <laughs> office building made entirely of concrete in a strip mall. I worked in the basement in a Oof, room in the brutal. basement with like four other people and no windows. And it oh. was like at seven 30 in the morning on a Monday, you wanted to die. Like, like yeah. it, you could yeah. feel yeah. the oppression of the, yeah. of the structures, the strictures that you were working under the strict structures, the strict, the stricter structures. Yeah. And, and that's, that's a good example. Like maybe Joe, you never, maybe you were able to say like, yes, this is, um, this is, uh, produced by the, the, the building I'm in, but maybe you just felt nasty and this reading this book might allow you to say, Oh, maybe that was poorly designed or maybe that was designed that way on purpose. Right. Oh, goal. Yeah. Was joy. Like, yeah. Maybe the goal is really not to, to um, prompt people to have flights of fancy at work, but to stay locked in and to get done and to leave and and be done. Um, Ian, can I tell another building work story? Very absolutely quickly. not. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. absolutely so, so then, not. That I okay. I worked as an editor for a different company, and the other company had like. Ian, can you please give us um, give us some some things we can take? Give us some takeaways. What can we? Okay, he gives us words on how to look at things differently. Do you have any of those? Are any bite size shareable? Or so the book builds, and and it's hard to abstract things, but I'll abstract a couple. Um, His brand, the whole brand that Elaine de Baton has, um, uh, not just in his books, which have been bestsellers, but also in his um, architectural work and in his. Um, sort of cultural work is apparently has a YouTube series. Um, he's got some some documentaries. He makes what is esoteric accessible, and this is what he's doing here. So you you read this book, you don't maybe you don't come in with a lot of architectural knowledge, but reading the book helps you understand why an Adobe house in an Iowa subdivision is annoying, or <laughs> um, why this the Willis Towers simplicity 
and kind of monumentalism is so powerful. So one of the big things he does is he, he he hones in on starting with feelings. This makes us feel this way. And then he says these specific design elements, this is out of place. And he says it's really important that your buildings be in the right place. He goes to uh, a recreated Dutch village in the middle of Japan. And he's like, I hated it. It was very Dutch, but it wasn't in Holland. It wasn't born out of Holland. This is the the Adobe house. Um, uh, He says like here, here's the way the vertical lines kind of point our eyes and point our bodies. Um, Here's the way that uh, uh, solid colors uh, affect our understanding of the way a building looks. And this is why the Willis Tower looks the way it does. Okay, but the obvious question is, isn't this all extremely subjective? Hang okay, on, I'll get this to that. Is, yeah, go ahead. I'll get, I'll get to the subjective. <laughs> that question that's, was for Joe. <laughs> I, have, I have thoughts. <laughs> Joe, what do you think? I think, I think the answer is no. I, I don't think it's extremely subjective. I think it feels subjective because it's like, well, I like that, but I don't like that. But I think like the magic of architecture, the reason that you go on an architecture tour and it feels like the most interesting thing that you've ever seen is because of this thing that it articulates an idea that you have, but haven't been able to see, right? Like you, like, like you, you've never been able to say, so like, I don't understand why the vertical lines on that building, like make me feel the way that I do, but they do make me feel that. And there's something intrinsic about those lines that elevates my eye or whatever the case is, right. That like, that brings that feeling out in me. It's like, uh, it's not just a magic trick. It's like, and unveiling. Yeah, it, it like reveals something to you. Mm-hmm. No, well, this is wrong. Ian, you, now you answer it. This is well, this is one of the things that um, De Botton has been criticized for. He makes these kind of sweeping, obvious statements. And if you read other one star reviews, people would say like, OK, slow down, buddy. Uh, and we'll get to that in Tiffany's. But I kind of like the approach that he uses. He's taking broad evidence and make, making big claims about humanity. So he, he says this is one of my favorite claims in this book. Our buildings tell us who we are. If we want to understand ourselves, look at the buildings that we like. So, um, and, and the buildings that we, we place ourselves in. Okay, this is great. Ian, I love mid-century modern. What does that say about me? It means you like Mad Men. It, well, oh, I, I, I do like Mad Men. <laughs> I think it's a very good show. It's extremely offensive to a lot of and groups. Tom Draper is so handsome. <laughs> I think that's why I like it. <laughs> um, I would say, I would say, Nick, that that I'm, I, this is not like a psychoanalysis corner, but I would say that the enduring popularity of mid-century modern um, connects to uh, a desire for a period when the U.S. was pretty prosperous. Oh um, when we, shit! Nope, mm. nope. No, hey, hear me out. No, pretty prosperous, okay. and we were we were willing and able to uh, have the leisure to design things that were beautiful. Um, it's all it's so it's nostalgic, but it's also kind of a hope for the future because oh my this gosh. is the last big era in um, the last like recognizable one of the last recognizable desirable eras in American design, American and and, and global design um, that the mid century modern vibe. And it's returning, right? It's coming back. And as it returns, we have hope that with the return of the mid-century modern aesthetic, um, we can also return to some of the prosperity, some of the perceived stability, America as a superpower, all of this stuff. And like, I'm not saying that you're you're a, a, an America nationalist, like oh America God. first guy. Ian, I have a question for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Am I racist? 
Based on your love for mid-century modern? Yes. You're yeah. racist. <laughs> racist. Canceled. Nick, come on. 151 no, episodes no, I think, before we get canceled. I think, Let's go. Let's go. I would say no. I would say because he's not particularly <laughs> interested in this book in like discovering the nasty things that architecture says about us. It's if the architecture you like of round lights, you're a racist. He's saying, okay, so like, why do you like recessed lighting? Um, <laughs> I have a friend who loves, loves kind of a, 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 a Tuscan motif in mm. the housing um like tuscan italian? furniture and, and settings and they're not no um could like, this have been italian week uh maybe maybe should have been but the the, the, the <laughs> question Marvel. that he's asking is like what do we like what do we like about it and what does that liking say about us and and this this claim this 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 very bite-sized claim our buildings tell us who we are she tells us that by looking around our space right by looking at the buildings we've built or maybe the houses we've bought, or maybe the houses we're renting, or maybe just the dorm room we're decorating. Our surroundings reflect our priorities, our interests, ourselves back onto us. Not just like, oh, there's a Pulp Fiction poster on the wall. That means I like Pulp Fiction. <laughs> it's like, hey, when I was when I was <laughs> when I was in college, I didn't decorate at all. What if when I, I was put, put up good pictures of good houses <laughs> in my house? <laughs> Maybe you're aspirational. I don't know. I I just want to talk really, really fast about him as a person. Uh, Mm -hmm. He's an interesting fellow. And then I'll stop. His grandma was a spy for Israel in the 1940s and 1950s. Um, His uh, ancestor was a very influential um, rabbi. Genghis Khan. Nope. Um, He went to a school in England called the Dragon School. Wow. Is that like the wizard school that we found in in like Alabama? (laughs) No, No, I think it's (laughs) one time. Florida is where it was. Yes. Uh Yeah. Oh, yes. Of course. Um, uh, No, the Dragon School is just like a a fancy prep school. um, Because And when I say fancy, because um, Papa Papa de Botton was a multimillionaire, maybe a billionaire in today's That's money. how you get to become a philosopher. That's how you get to write a book about architecture. <laughs> he bequeathed a bunch of money to Baton. And uh, I was like, as I was reading through kind of the biography, I was like, okay, I see how this is. I see how I want to be working. bequeathed. But then, yeah. but then I read the part where the Baton says, I hated him. And so he left me this money in a trust fund and I don't touch it. I live off of my own stuff. Um, uh, and he's quite wealthy mm, and whatever. But he didn't but, give it away. But it, but it is still in that trust fund. Just <laughs> in yeah. case. I do accept the interest. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't touch it. I've never touched the principal. <laughs> yeah. Don't touch the principal. I'll never touch principal. your principal, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not Gracious. like you. Uh, this book was a lot of, this book was a, a real eye opener. And I love that it gave me language to think about and understand um, a part of my world that is essential, but I hadn't really considered. And it's kind of like it's it is really an unveiling. My eyes are opened in a way that they hadn't been before. Gentlemen, welcome to Tiffany's, a safe place for you to tell me all the mm-hmm. terrible, terrible things about your books without it being held against you. Wink. <laughs> oh that wink joe go first tell me all yeah. the tell me about your marbles your marble okay. i you think your marbles? Th- this is what i this is what i think a new lady to this book somebody who picking up this book for the first time might not like very much 
I think it would be very easy to bounce off this book in the first 50 pages of it, mm-hmm. right? Like it is, it is weird. It is like mon- uh, not monotonous, but uh, mono, 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 like mono, like monoculture, mono, monotone, yeah, Sure, monotone works. It, it is okay. weird. It's a little monotone, etc. It moves very slowly early on until like the the mystery begins to reveal itself, um, and that is Tiffany's. My Tiffany's is this. He he uses an annoying over not annoying a thing that I call out in my student writing, the overgeneralizing we. There's mm. a lot of we like this. We're drawn oh, to this. Wow, capital yeah. appreciate this. in there. Huh? And the the weird thing is like as I read him, I think I might actually agree with like his taste. We share taste. The things mm-hmm. he likes, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty cool. So maybe he's onto something. But when an author comes in and says, "This is the way that humans." react right. to beauty like joe your example of the brutalist yeah. building um the humanities building on the uwm campus uh your uw um madison campus Not yet. Um, the i have a relative i have a relative who adores brutalism they yeah. might see that brutalist building and be like oh boy it's so beautiful um you are like this is ugly and stupid so yes um not everybody will agree with Debaton, and I think that is an argumentative weakness i think people don't necessarily agree that that's even important do you know what, what you I'm mean? saying? No, I don't tell no. me. What, what do you mean? That beauty in architecture is something that is even worth having a conversation about. And I so think that's the, the other part of the majority book. of people probably believe that he's making a claim that it does matter by explaining right. how right. it matters. He's making a claim that it does matter. So it's, it's polemic. What agree to disagree. I mean, what, <laughs> <laughs> you know what he I'm wants, saying? Yeah. He, but he wants people to, to, he's saying if I show them the beauty, then, then they must, we must, we must acknowledge. Yeah, it's iffy. Um, both of these sound quite good. So, Joe, I, I like your book. Um, I liked all the pictures that we talked about. Mm-hmm. But, Ian, it sounded like your pictures were actually in the book, not out. Yes. Not, like, not, right. not so, My sort book of outside did require reference. a separate search. That's true. Some um, pictures there, some bricks. Yeah. And so, some buildings. Uh, for that reason, Joe, you lose. Um, I understand. Ian, That's despite, fair. despite the tremendous... Uh, I, I think this is one point of view, but I do think it's an interesting kind of argument. Absolutely. And that's a good way to think about it. it like it, that sounds cool. Like I'd love to. Yeah, I think that's cool to be able to as, like put things into words a little bit better. Right. He sets himself up as like, this is the truth. I don't think that quite holds up, but it certainly has a lot of merit to it. Awesome. Joe, did you hear that you lost? Yeah, I did. I did. I am upset. He's, I know you want me to be visibly upset. Uh, but you can but hear I, I him tearing it, up his his. All right, lit heads. Thank you very much. Um, we we love you, lit heads. Um, if you want to support the show, probably the best thing you can do. Well, the best thing you can do is tell a bookish friend. The second best thing you can do though is head on over to you don't know lit You can suggest a theme. You can suggest a book. You can request a sticky. Um, you can always rate and review us on the podcast player of your choice, so we get that sweet sweet iTunes bump. And then beyond that, tell a bookish friend. Uh, Litheads beget more lick, more litheads. And um, yeah, we love hearing from you. We love hearing your suggestions. And uh, more, you know, more people that read, it just makes the world better. So congratulations, Ian. Congratulations, Elaine de Baton, on your trust fund and your YouTube sensational career and all those things. Okay. You know, all, right. Be <laughs> all right. Congratulations. All right, I'm gonna read a very short quote. I've got to set it up because it's kind of kind of kind of complex. Um, uh, but he's this is at the end of a chapter about um, uh, what it means, what it literally means for architecture to be beautiful. Um, 
And he's talked about how um, architecture like tells us, like tells us stories or makes arguments about things that matter to us. Um, and I'm happy to explicate this quote afterwards if you want, because it, I had to read it a couple of times. He says, to call a work of architecture or design beautiful is to recognize it as a rendition of values which are critical to our flourishing. A transubstantiation of our individual ideals in a material medium. Got it. Tight quote. <laughs>